it says, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched, and he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, it's great to see you guys. My name's Andrew, one of the pastors here at Riverbend, and we have been going kind of section by section through um, the story of Genesis, and I'm really excited for this one today. My father-in-law is a missionary and evangelist, mainly in the Latin world, but in a former life, he was a pastor, and he tells a story often, as dads always do. I'm guilty of it as well retelling stories, but anyways, he tells the story often of his first church in Pendleton, and he describes there's this woman, this old lady, a part of his church back, way back in the day, and she was the kind of lady who could like see through to your soul, you know those kinds of people who could just like see straight through you, she knew something about him and his youth that he didn't yet figure out, and so she would come up to him after a Sunday sermon when people were up there sort of giving him a pat on the back, and she would say this, Michael, God wants to mold you, but he'll chisel you if he has to, which I thought is like kind of an intense thing to say when you think about it. It's an intense thing to say. As a pastor, you'd much rather hear something like, hey, good message, bro, or at like the very least, like maybe an email with a critique sandwich or something like that. I get a few of those every week, but anyways, all that to say, there's this lady and she was... She, she would always say that to him, and I, I think she's actually on to something. In fact, I think the story about Jacob uh, that we just read, it can be summarized in this way. When God wants to transform you, it may hurt for a little while. And that's the story of Jacob. I know it sounds intense, like the lady from Pendleton, but I promise you, this is actually a really good news story. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of nuance in this story. So I want to set the stage, biblically speaking. Um, I think I can tell the life of Jacob so far in like under two minutes. You guys time me, and we'll see how I do. Okay, so Jacob, we learned last week, comes out of the womb contesting their family's birthright. And his attitude towards his twin brother Esau is something like this. He's like, listen, man. I want to be first. 
I want to be the one who gets blessed. Get out of my way. That's Jacob's attitude. That's how he earns his namesake, Jacob, which means heel grabber. And then that rivalry grows over the years into a bitter feud where finally Jacob does something really shady. He lies, cheats, and steals his way into receiving his dad's blessing over Esau. And Esau's furious about it. He wants to kill him. And so Jacob is forced to flee east. Now, if you've been following along in the story, you know that wandering east represents the direction away from God. It's away from Eden. It's away from God's presence. It's away from God's blessing. So the story is not going great so far. The guy that God was determined to bless all of the families of the earth with, man, he is a fugitive on the run, and he's hightailing it in the wrong direction. Believe it or not, though, the story, as it unfolds, there's still a lot of hope because in Genesis 28, God appears to Jacob again in the wilderness and repeats the blessing, just like he did for his grandfather Abraham. He repeats the blessing and God actually shows up. And God's presence in in chapter 28 assures Jacob that although things look pretty bleak right now, and even though it's totally Jacob's fault, that God is still with him and he's still going to make him into a great great nation. You just need to trust in me. That's the message that God gives uh, Jacob. So God's grace is this marvelous and beautiful thing that follows us throughout the story of the Bible. And this is also, of course, true for your life. God's grace is for you. And God really comes through for Jacob, just like he said. See, Jacob has to start over in a new land with nothing. And he becomes like a farmhand, basically. He's got no reputation, so that's about all he can do. But pretty soon, he's married, and they have a bunch of kids. And it looks like the great multitude that God had promised him and his family is like starting to form. There's 11 brothers and a bunch of sisters and all of that. And not only that, but also everything that Jacob touches, he's successful with. He's like my brother Matt Larson, who's leading worship here this morning. Like this dude, if you don't know Matt, Matt is, everything he does just turns to gold. He can't stop getting promoted at work. It just happens again and again and again. And his wife is laughing, and he is really, really embarrassed right now, but it's so true. And he's totally humble about it. He's got like three side hustles. Somehow they all make money. This is a guy who anything he touches, it just, it looks effortless, and, and he's successful at it. And that's exactly what Jacob's like. Jacob, everything that he does is successful. Turns out he's a fantastic, uh, he's fantastic at breeding livestock, and livestock in the ancient world is like currency. And uh, so Jacob becomes a wealthy, wealthy man over time. He still has a problem, though. His problem is his father-in-law, Laban, and they were in business together, which kind of seems like an ill-fated idea from the get-go, if you ask me, but they're in business together. And so Laban's a cheater and a thief, just like Jacob, so he's sort of getting a taste of his own medicine. And then plus, Jacob is also hundreds of miles away from where, uh, from where God said he would give him a land as an inheritance. So God had made him these promises, but he's miles and miles and miles away from receiving that, prop- that, 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 that inheritance. So what Jacob does is he packs up, and he becomes a fugitive on the run again. And this time, he's fleeing back west, like, fleeing, like fleeing west, kind of like the Oregon Trail, but like 5,000 years prior. This is like his long journey back to the land of blessing. And this is what it says in verse 1. It says this. Jacob also went on his way. The angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Manhaneim. 
So after decades of sojourning, he's finally going in the right direction. He's finally oriented back towards the place that God had called him to be. And the angels are there, basically essentially cheering him on, saying, yes, this is the way. God is with you. Keep going. Also notice what happens in verse 9. Jacob's afraid of what his brother, understandably, might want to do to him when he makes it back home to the land of Canaan. So what does Jacob do? He prays. This is a big step of growth for Jacob. Check this out. Oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you have said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. And he says this, I am unworthy of all of the kindness and faithfulness that you've shown your servant. I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've come back becoming two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But he, you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So what do you see here with that prayer? What I see is maybe Jacob is finally getting it. He doesn't need to strive. He doesn't need to scheme in order to be blessed. He only needs to trust God, that God will actually do what he promised. Think about it. He gets a lot of things right in this prayer. For example, he calls God by the three names that he gave him back in a place called Bethel. His heart is filled with thanksgiving. He's humbled by everything that God has done for him. When I crossed over this river going east, all I had was my staff, my walking stick. Now, decades later, I'm coming back with wealth, two camps, all kinds of people in my family. So for Jacob, this was a representation of a lot of personal growth and character development. Maybe Jacob is finally, after a life of scheming and strategizing, that he would actually get it, that God actually just wants to bless him. He doesn't have to fight for it. He's just going to get it. Now, if Jacob had just lived his prayer, he would have been just fine. But as soon as he's done praying, he goes back to his old tricks. And we got to pay attention to this because uh, we might miss it if we don't sort of read the subtext of what's going on here in the story. And I think we miss it when we're, we, it's possible for us to miss it because we do the same thing to the Lord all the time. We rationalize, we justify this kind of behavior so we can hardly even notice that it's actually Jacob's fatal flaw. But here's his fatal flaw. And I think it's possible that it could be some of ours as well. Once again, Jacob tries to protect himself and take matters into his own hands just in case God doesn't do what he promised. I know the angels are there. I know God promised to bless me. I know he blessed my father and my grandfather. I've got more camels. I got more sheep. I got more donkeys than I know what to do with. And I just finished praying for God to deliver me. But just in case he doesn't, I'm going to drop a plan B. I'm going to take out an insurance policy. I'm, if I'm going to go home to Canaan, and what if God doesn't protect me? Then if that's the case, then I had better strategize myself to make sure that I'm okay. And friends, this is Jacob's fatal flaw, common in our world today too. Last week I quoted the American proverb, God helps those who help themselves. That is about as far away from a biblical idea as you can get. That is, sounds a lot more like someone like Rockefeller or one of the titans of industry from America than it does like Jesus. God does not help those who help themselves. God blesses those who trust in him. Here are literally 30 examples of that in my next slide. Here they are. 
God blesses those who trust in him. Sometimes we can, uh, because we're, we've internalized all kinds of things from our uh, cultural moment, we've sort of lost sight of the biblical plot line. And the biblical plot line is that God will bless those who trust in him. And that's what God wanted for Jacob, but he didn't have the faith for it yet. You don't need an insurance policy against God's word. You don't need an insurance policy against God's word. Trusting him means that you're willing to wager your life on his promise. So Jacob doesn't have the faith to do that, and so he draws up his B plan. And he sends, this is his B plan. He sends messengers ahead of him. He says, go figure out if Esau still wants me dead, right? Because when they left, when they parted ways decades ago, that's, that was the situation. And remember, Esau is an expert hunter. So if he was able to, like, kill a deer on the run with a bow, he's going to have no problem getting his younger brother. So Jacob's just like nervous about this. He's still afraid of this. And so he sends these messengers out. Now the messengers come back quicker than expected and they report this. Well, listen, Esau's on his way out to meet you and he's got 400 men with him. What does that sound like to you? To me, that sounds like, you know, Jacob is, uh, excuse me, that Esau is still holding a grudge. And he's bringing an army out to seek revenge. That's what it sounds like. He's just like, man, you did me wrong. I'm going to get you back for what you did to me. And it, by, in, in all indications, that is what is actually going on here. Jacob sends, or excuse me, Esau sends five, 400 men to come after Jacob. So Jacob springs into action. He does the thing that he only knows how to do. He goes back to his old tricks, his old tricks of scheming. He starts by preparing like a bunch of peace offerings. And what he does is he sends them out in like a parade of sorts, one gift after another, and he spaces them out on the road towards Canaan. And it looks kind of like this. I wanted to create a little visual representation. So he sends a servant out with dozens of goats, we're told. Then he sends a bunch of servants out with hundreds of sheep. And then he sends another sort of parade, if you will, of cows with more servants and then uh, camels. Then we're told there's also donkeys and rams and things like this. He's just giving, giving him all of these uh, different gifts, one after the other. And again, livestock was currency in the ancient world. So this was a huge gift. Esau could have kept them, bred them, ate them, sold them, whatever. This was an incredible gift that, that uh, Jacob was giving to Esau. So as far as like human strategies go, you kind of have to give it to Jacob because this is not a bad plan. It's a pretty solid plan. For example, if Esau wants to kill him, then at least this livestock, which isn't going to do him any good anyways if he's dead, man, he's going to slow Esau down with all of these gifts. Also, the 400 men who were with Esau, most likely they were in it for the plunder of war. So if they saw all these gifts come in their way, they would just take some sheep and go home. But then at best, what Jacob's doing is he's appeasing Esau's anger. Maybe he's sending the message that's like, listen, man, I'm not a threat to you. I know I used to try and like steal your blessing, but I'm not after your blessing anymore. In fact, let me give you some reparations for what I did to you. It's a pretty decent plan. The problem is that's not what God wanted. And that wasn't what God was asking him to do. And what happens next is a little bit more tragic than that. He divides his family into two camps. He's got two wives. It's a story for another time. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot there. But anyways, he puts one camp in front of the other, and he sends them out in front of him too, uh, just like that. He's got all of these people. And then what's going on is he's positioning himself at the very back of his entire household. 
at the very back. In verse 8, he reasons, if Esau runs through my family, maybe one, one group will get away. If he runs through all of my family, both camps, maybe the implication is I'll still get away. So he's hiding behind his wife and his, his wives and his kids like they're a shield. So Jacob's been scheming his whole life, but this is the height of his selfishness. And this is what a life of selfish living will get you. He's got a lot of stuff to his name, but he is unrecognizable from the man that God had called him to be. He was willing to forfeit his family and all of his possessions and all of his blessing if it meant saving himself. This is a tragic new low that a life of selfish living will get you, and that's what it got for Jacob. And this also happens to be the definitive turning point of his life where it all changes because God has simply had enough. He said, enough selfish living already, enough disbelief, and he intervenes. So this is what happens in verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. And then it goes on. So there's some mysterious man who shows up and wrestles with Jacob. And that word man in verse 24 is intentionally ambiguous. We don't know if that means just like some random person, an angel, or God. At this point, we don't know. It's going to be revealed later on in the story. And then we learn that this wrestling match, it lasts all night and into the early morning hours. So this is a popular story. And I'm sure you've thought about this and you know it well. So what is this wrestling match? Why is there a wrestling match between Jacob and this obscure man? Well, it's because it's a perfect illustration of Jacob's life. It's a perfect illustration of what Jacob's been doing all along. According to Dr. Ray Lubeck, who uh, wrote an incredible book um, that's called uh, Reading the Bible for a Change. It's insanely good. He, he says um, that this story represents one of the major plot, plot conflicts of the story of the whole Bible. And he refers to it like this. He says, the wrestling match symbolizes when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. And God is the unstoppable force who is just determined to bless his people no matter what. God will not give up on the project of redeeming his people with his love. That's just what God is always going to do. He's an unstoppable force. You cannot stop him. The immovable object is Jacob's stubborn will that he insists on being in control of his own life. And because he insists on being in control of his own life, he just cannot believe and trust in the Lord. So God just cannot get Jacob to believe that he's actually better off trusting in him, trusting in God, than trusting in his own ability to bless himself. And this is the story that's playing out. And this is, by the way, like Dr. Ray Lubeck says, is a major plot conflict of the story of the Bible. We see this time and again with the nation of Israel, who are Jacob's descendants. For example, Exodus chapter 32, 9 the Lord says to Moses, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. They're stiff-necked. They're stubborn. But this uh, sort of compulsion for control, it's epitomized in the Jacob story. It's epitomized even here in this life moment. This is a catalyst for Jacob in this wrestling match where the father of the whole nation just will not quit wrestling and will not quit fighting his way through life. And I think we see this a lot in our stories as well. I, I used to think that being stubborn was like a somewhat unique character trait to myself. 
And then I got married and had a couple kids, and now I realize, not at all. Like, we're all pretty stubborn. And then I've been pastoring for a minute, too. Y'all can be pretty stubborn, too. I know you look really sweet and kind on the surface, but y'all can be stubborn. I, I think I was initially wrong. I think that stubbornness is a fairly common human trait. So I guess the question for us today is, what's the thing you're fighting with God over? Or what's the thing that you won't trust him with because you insist on being in control of it? That, my friends, is your idol. And 10 times out of 10, I believe that's exactly what God wants you to hand over to him. And this is a repeated theme, actually, from Genesis chapter 22, when God was doing something similar in Abraham. And we've been talking a bit about this, and I've had several of you come to me and just share how much you didn't realize until now, but you've been clutching and holding on to something that God has been wanting you to give over to him. But for whatever reason, maybe it's a desire for control, or maybe it's something else, you just cannot get to, uh, seem to get yourself to let go of that thing, and you're keeping it away from the Lord. The, 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 the tragic irony of that is that the Lord is interested in blessing you, has nothing but good things for you. He wants to ensure that you do well and thrive and flourish. The problem is when we hold on to things that he wants us to give over to him, we're actually ill-equipped, we're unable uh, to receive the blessing that God wants for us. And that's, again, epitomized here in Jacob's story. Let me, if you're still on the fence about what I just said, let me prove it to you. Jacob wrestled with God because he doesn't want God to be in control. He wants to generate his own safety and blessing. And God, frankly, just knew that that wouldn't work. Plain and simple, it doesn't work. For what God had planned for Jacob, Jacob has to trust him. It's essential. His destiny that was glorious and filled with all kinds of blessing, it was essential for Jacob to trust God and not himself. So here's the beauty and the power of God's wisdom. He already knows the things in our hearts that he wants to transform even before you know what those things are. God, there's parts of my character, parts of your character that God wants to reform. And he will, we're learning, he will wrestle you over those things. And it's not because he's like a demanding and neurotic father. People have gotten that wrong about him lately. He's going to wrestle those things out of you because he wants to prepare you for a blessing and a future that he has planned for you. That's what it was about for Jacob. It was like Jacob, all of Jacob's scheming and all of his selfish living, all it was doing was sabotaging the story of redemption that God was wanting to tell through his life. His destiny that God had for him, it exceeded what he could have strived to get on his own. And so Jacob's heart had to change because it was sabotaging what God wanted to do in his life that was good. So God's saying, man, if you still don't trust me, then we're going to have to wrestle this through even more. You guys with me? Okay, so the wrestling match goes on, but God still has the same problem. Jacob's the immovable object. No matter how long the wrestling match goes on, Jacob still just will not give in. And so, when it becomes clear that Jacob will not surrender, that his will is just too stubborn to submit to God willingly, God does the only thing left that he can do. What? Kill him? Abandon him? Bless somebody else instead? That's probably what I would do. No, what God does is he wounds him. He wounds him. He strikes his hip socket so hard that it actually pops out of joint. Now, the way that I've always read this and understood this is that now Jacob's hurt 
and physically he can't keep wrestling anymore. And I think that that's a pretty good reading. I still think that that's mostly true. But recently I was listening to a podcast with Dr. Tim Mackey, who's a Hebrew scholar and the creator of the Bible Project. And he says that the language here in the Hebrew suggests something more than just his hip being knocked out of socket. And he says that it's probably referring to like a kick in the groin. Yeah, you probably weren't expecting that on your way into church this morning, were you? Just like they teach you in self-defense class. If you're in a fight you can't win, aim for the middle of the legs and kick as hard as you can. That's essentially what I'm picturing now. And his argument is that the strike to that area was so forceful that it knocked Jacob's hip out of socket. And if Dr. Mackey's right about this, then the wounding that God does to Jacob suggests a little bit more than just he's hurt. This is a big symbolic sort of connotation to that part of a person. That's his manhood, as we say. Or that's the part of him that can generate his own blessing. Remember, the first blessing in the beginning of this story is be fruitful and multiply. That's the first blessing that God gives people. And from here on out, Jacob is done having kids. Benjamin comes a little bit later, but most scholars think that Leah was already pregnant when this happened. So in other words, what's going on is that God's wounding means that he can no longer generate his own blessing. He's actually forced to depend on God to bless him instead. So in other words, just like I said at the beginning, when God's transforming you, it may hurt for a while. God wants to mold you, but he'll chisel you if he has to. If he has to. And that's, his, that's Jacob's story. C.S. Lewis calls this uh, an example of Severe mercy. Severe mercy. A situation where God allows or brings about difficult, painful circumstances in a person's life for their ultimate benefit and growth. It's this idea that God's actions, though painful, are motivated by his love and desire to transform us into a people who trust him and are worthy of God's blessing. Trustworthy of God's blessing. And I think a, a good sort of metaphor to this is um, just like uh, what it means to live here in Central Oregon. If you've been around Central Oregon long, you know how fragile our water table is. And how in the last 10 years, we, our ecosystem has like descended into drought in a pretty serious way. Which is why when newcomers come to town and they're complaining about like a long winter or a lot of spring rain, those of us who've been around a little while, we, we think to ourselves, yeah, we would rather have a more mild winter, but we're actually better off when we have deep snowpack. And this year is a perfect example to that. The West Coast has experienced unprecedented drought over the last 10 years, but this year we had record snowfalls again and record rains in the spring, and it nurtured the land, replenished our aquifers, replenished our lakes, things like that. And it's completely changed the landscape of the West Coast. For example, this summer, the foothills across California exploded into a super bloom of wildflowers. Check that out. This is normally landscape that is brown and gray desert that has burst into vibrant color because seeds that have been lying dormant and unwatered for years have finally received enough moisture to grow and bloom. There's another slide of this exact phenomenon in space. There it is in 2016 and then 2017 where there was another super bloom. So it's remarkable what will happen when there's severe storm like this. Also, the water levels of Lake Shasta have been steadily declining over the decades. And um, 
Because of the severe storms this winter, the lake is actually now back to peak levels. Here's uh, 2022 Lake Shasta right there on the, on the left-hand side. And then this is what Shasta looks like today. It's only possible because of the severe winter storms and the spring rain. And the Bible talks about this kind of thing again and again. God's judgment is like a fire. But that fire is like a, a fire that burns away impurities from precious metals. And at the end of that refiner's fire, at the end of that process, the gold is 100% pure. Also, John chapter 15 says the father prunes branches off of the vine so that the vine produces more fruit. Meaning that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, our hardship is God wounding us in an act of mercy to reap the blessing that he has planned for us. So for Jacob, the kick to the hip is actually a gift because God wanted to prepare him, and God may want to be preparing your heart to yield to his power and control. And if you don't yield to him, then sometimes this wounding is necessary. It was certainly necessary in Jacob's case. Psalm 51 verse 17 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. So the wrestling match is this catalyst for Jacob to finally, for the first time in his life, have a broken and contrite heart. And I think this is a cautionary tale. Like, fortunately, hopefully for us, we can learn from Jacob's stubbornness so that our wrestling match does not have to be quite so severe and that the wounding doesn't have to be so great. And we have to give it to Jacob because although Jacob has a really hard time getting this concept early in his life, things really turn around, and this is the pivotal moment where it all turns around. First of all, Jacob deserves a hard time for everything we're giving him and what Esau was going to give him because he was a skeevy dude. But let's give him credit where credit's due. When you're in pain, like Jacob's in pain after getting a kick to the groin, you just want it to be over. Just get me over this. Like whatever it takes for this pain to just go away. But check out our man Jacob. Look what he does. Verse 26. Then the man said, let me go. He's speaking of the angel God figure. Let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So now Jacob sort of humbled his heart, or God humbled his heart, rather. And now Jacob knows who he's dealing with. And so because now he knows who he's dealing with and because his heart has been humbled, Jacob leans in to the moment of pain and refuses to let go so that he can get out of the experience everything that he's supposed to get. He's not going to just bounce out of the painful situation. He's going to hold on and make sure that he gets everything that God wants him to have. The man says, let me go. He says, I won't do it. I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. So when you're wrestling with God, there's always something that's more important than just the momentary pain. The re, it, the, what, what's more important is the results of what God actually wants to accomplish through the pain. For example, if you're running a marathon, it's going to hurt way, way before you ever get the prize. But don't stop before it's done. Finish the race and get the prize. And this is the bright side, I think, of Jacob's ambition. Now that he's wounded... He's going after God with everything that he's got. He's got the urgency of a guy who's desperate for God's blessing. 
In his life so far, he's stolen a blessing, he's lied for a blessing, he's betrayed his father for a blessing, and now, finally, he's begging God. He's begging God for a blessing. And this is where we want to be. As long as we're still acting like we're the ones in control, as long as we're still like working out our B plan, you're just not ready to trust in the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Notice how often these scriptures, like the great Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the twice daily prayer of the nation of Israel, it's, it's there for a reason. The emphasis is with all of your heart, not part of you, not a bit of you. That's why we've named this year the year of undivided devotion. We're trying to uproot any duplicity in our hearts where we trust in other things besides the Lord. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there's a group of followers of Yahweh who are outnumbered by another army. And say, they say to God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Another time in 2 Chronicles, it says, The Lord is searching across the earth to strongly support those whose hearts are fully His. And that's what's happening through this wounding experience and through this wrestling match. And now Jacob's to the point where he's going, I'm not letting go. I'm going to hold on until I get everything I'm supposed to get from this experience. And this is, by the way, the resolution of the plot conflict that we mentioned a minute ago. The immovable object moved. Forget trusting in myself. Forget trusting in others. Forget trusting in my ability to scheme my way through life. I'm throwing all of my energy instead onto holding on to God. And I'm spending all of my energy believing and trusting his promise to bless my life. And when you begin to think like that, then that's when you get to be serious about your prayer life. And that's when God gets to be serious about the prayers that you pray. Because until then, you're not really even decided about whether he's trustworthy to come through on his promise. So here's what the wrestler says to him. He says, what's your name? What's your name? So what does the wrestler, does the wrestler not know who he's fighting here? Now he knows who he's fighting. He wants, to hear J- he wants to hear Jacob say it. He wants to hear Jacob say his name. He says, I'm a heel grabber. As he's holding on to the guy and not letting him go. The irony here is thick. He's like, oh, you don't say heel grabber, huh? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have known. So the man is saying, listen, tell me your name so that I can hear you tell me what kind of man you've been, what kind of man you are. See, God cannot change us and transform us until we're ready to come clean about who we are and where we've been. He wants to transform us, but we've got to be honest about what our messes are. And Jacob has a lot of them. He's got a lot of faults. But here in this moment, he owns his mess And he holds on to God for a blessing. And because he did, this is what happens. God gives him a new name. God gives him a brand new identity. He says, your name is Israel, which means wrestles with God. Now, what does this whole exchange sound like to you? To me, it sounds exactly like the story of Jesus. It sounds like God covering over our selfish living and giving the ultimate blessing of a new life to anyone who will own their mess and hold on to Jesus. And that's exactly what happens with Jacob. Now, Jacob's new name, it actually has the name of God in it. 
Jacob's new name has the name of God in it. In other words, God puts his own name in Israel's new name. He's saying, this is my guy. God is saying, this is my guy. I love him. He's my guy. I'm going to bless him. And that's exactly what God wants to do for us in Jesus. See, the story ends with Israel getting blessed. And then it ends in this way. He, he's limping his way to the front of his household to face his fear and face his past as a new man. So you remember that diagram I showed you a minute ago where Jacob is hiding behind his family and scheming his way to try and game his brother one last time. So put yourself in his shoes now. He was one day away from forfeiting his blessings and his family. It's one day away of giving up all the blessings that God had given him to game his brother one last time. But now he's limping to the front of the pack with a new life message to live into. And this is how the story wraps. In chapter 33, verse 3, it says this, He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So for the first time in Jacob's life, he trusts in the Lord. In the face of death, he's humbled in front of his brother, the one that he had been trying to game and scheme and get ahead of. Now he's bowing to him. And the, the real miracle here is that the brothers are reconciled and they are living by faith in the Lord together. So he's saved, he's blessed, but Jacob's also finally transformed. And I think this is what God has for each of us is some journey that looks a bit similar to this. So the question as we close is, what are you wrestling with God over? And who do you think is gonna win that fight? Who do you want to win that fight? See, he wants to mold you. Don't make him chisel you. You have control over that. You don't have to resist so hard. You can actually let him win the fight. Next, what plans do you need to surrender to him? Like the options that you're carrying just in case God doesn't come through, it's not serving you well. It's not deepening your trust in God. It's actually hindering your prayers because you haven't even made up your mind or made up your heart about whether or not God's trustworthy yet. So God is looking for, is for you to hold on to him with everything, to not hedge your bets against him just in case God doesn't come through. He wants you to trust and to believe in his promise that he said he called you by a new name. He's given you a new family. Next, how have you been wounded? How have you been wounded? And it's possible that you're just going through something that's challenging and that's difficult, and it's not as a result of God wounding you. It can just be a difficult circumstance, and so it's important for us to nuance those things out. But for some of us, we've been so stubborn and so hard-headed over the years that God has no choice. We're not yielding to him, so God has no choice. He's got to 
do some severe mercy. And if that's you, I just encourage you to do what Jacob did for all of his faults. He did this thing well. He wanted to get from God everything that he's supposed to get from the experience. And I think that that's what you want too, man. Some of us are going through some difficult times, but the Lord wants to prepare you for for future, for blessing. And then finally, who or what are you holding on to with desperation? For Jacob, this was the only thing that he could hold on to was this man he was wrestling. And my hope is for each of us that our answer is it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's him. He's the one that we're holding on to and that we will not let go of. And this is what all of these prayer practices that we've been teaching you over the last year is all about. It's about hungering and desiring after God and holding on to him most of all. See, he is so good. He's been saving you. He's been blessing you. You're a daughter. You're a son of God. That's who you are now. That's your new identity. That's your new name. Child of God, beloved. That's what Jesus says you are. And then the sort of deep, sometimes painful work that he's doing in your life, maybe it's to prepare you for the future reign of his kingdom. And I just hope that we would be like Jacob, who was renamed Israel. He said, you know, I'm going to hold on to him. I'm going to gain everything from, that I possibly can from this experience. And then I'm going to limp my way to the front of the pack. And I'm going to stand there. I'm going to face my sin. I'm going to face my brokenness. I'm going to face my past. I'm going to face whatever comes my way. As the person of faith and trusting in the Lord for what he has promised. And so let's just stand together and let's pray this in. Let's pray this in. I just want to pray a prayer of blessing over you, church. This narrative is heavy with drama and and conflict. And in the end, Jacob finally did yield and he was better off for it than So I just wanna pray for you. God, I just pray for my sisters and brothers. In the name of Jesus, I pray, would we be like Jacob, not at the beginning, but at the end? Would we be people like Israel? Who are wounded to the point where we're going, you know what, you're right. I can't generate my own blessing. I can't figure this out myself. I'm not meant to. I'm meant to trust in the Lord. I'm meant to give my heart fully to him I'm just getting this sense that there's some people here trying to like hold on to two things at once like trying to hold on to God to get blessed by him but you're also holding on to some other stuff I think what God's saying is it just doesn't work that way be like Jacob man like urgently desperately begging God for a blessing hold on to him and nothing else So God, I just pray for my friends here, my sisters and brothers, I just pray that you would put this solidarity in our hearts, God. There is no one, nothing else for us but you. There is no other gospel we hope in. There's no other mantra we tell ourselves. There's no other proverb or, or truth for us. It's you. You have come to us in the person of Jesus and you have said 
that we are saved and forgiven. And you have said that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are the one who said that we have victory over, over death and victory over evil through the cross. You're the one who made those claims. You're the one who came to us and said these things. And so we just want to be the ones crazy enough to believe you, to take you at your word with the kind of urgency that Israel did. And we want to have the courage, the faith, to walk by faith, to trust in you and not ourselves. So I encourage you, if there's anyone here who just needs to let go of that one thing that you're holding on to that is not him, and just in your own mind, this is very you know, abstract, but I encourage you to just go along on the journey and the exercise with me and just let go of the thing that's not him. just hold on to the Lord. God, you're the one that we hope in. So I just want to carefully, as we close here, just carefully pastor you through this next moment. We're going to be singing several more songs, and we're also going to be coming to the tables of communion here in a moment. And um, I just want to encourage you to stay very present in this, in this moment and how God may want you to respond. We're taught in the book of 1 Samuel that when we're, we think that God may be trying to speak to us, we say back to him, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so I just want to cultivate in our church this morning a posture of listening waiting on him so although we're going to be singing and we're going to be leaving our seats and coming up here to grab the bread and cup this is all a part of that experience where we're responding to the Lord together God we pray that we wouldn't miss out on anything that you want to give us today it's in your name Jesus we pray